Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. How are you, Michael? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. Oh, I thought we weren't recording for a minute. I'm no, well. No, don't you worry. This is the real thing. This, this is, is an actual intro and an intro to an episode we've already hyped quite a bit last week, but with good reason, I think. Yes, Robert Rinder. Well, there's nothing more that will sort of reach into the heartlands of Tunbridge Wells than a good, well-told story about some disappointing anal, don't you think? <laughs> Absolutely. We can't wait for that. They love that stuff in Kent. Yes. I didn't call it the Garden of England for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. I mean, standing ovation. <laughs> the thing is, I've been working with Michael for a bit now, and I don't know how sort of queer innuendo works really. So my thing is just to try and say stuff like that and hope for the best. That's a ten. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm learning from the best. I mean, that's a mic drop. Left the building. I dine on that to Wednesday. Amazing. I've got to record five more podcasts, and he's peaked already. <laughs> Gosh, we're getting really good at leaving pauses for those bits that you've just heard. We keep forgetting, so I'm really proud of us for doing that. Yeah, they'll never know, of course, because the pause was filled by something. <laughs> a wide-ranging conversation with Rob, and yeah, a lot of laughter. Uh, what I liked about Rob was that he thinks like a barrister. Like, you ask him a question, and no matter how far off you veer, he will come back to the answer. This was a very discursive conversation, but somehow we stayed somewhere adjacent to masculinity, and I hope that shows. Yes, enjoy. <laughs> I'm, as so often, Mark Watson. As always, I'm also Michael. Michael Chakraverty. And we are joined today by none other than Robert Rinder, who, well, morning, Robert. Good morning. We're going to ask you, uh, as is traditional, to say a little bit about who you are. And it's such a difficult question. I feel like I've been conscripted in some sort of hideous corporate event you know, where we're going to talk about leadership with the office and someone's going to bang out a guitar. And as I asked the question, it dawned on me, haven't you been on Who Do You Think You Are, actually? Yes, I have. Well, there's a lot to say. There we go. hope everybody's sitting comfortably. You could just send us the tape of that, actually. (laughs) I know. Also, I mean, what a question to ask to a a narcissist and an egomaniac. I mean... (laughs) We'll we'll, uh, we'll narrow it down. What stuff have you done professionally that people might know about? Oh, good. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) An existential crisis at 10 in the morning. We'll get back to your dysfunctional personality, but let's let's go in baby steps. We'll we'll be here a long time. Well, I used to be, although um, I'm still a member of Chambers, um, which means I'm a a barrister that used to do criminal defence work and then international financial and human rights law. And a series of very random events led me into television where um, I started presenting Judge Rinder, which is a civil court where I arbitrate over disputes between 
people across the country, variety of different uh, sorts of cases. And from there, because it's tele, you see, mm. and as soon as you get a modicum of fame, you get a disproportionate amount of privilege. You do infinitely less work for infinitely greater praise. And you get all of these chances to do stuff like, for example, um, learning to dance, which I was able to do well, I didn't really learn much, but I did get to speak to my partner for a short period of time before she left um, subsequently to go and invade the Crimea. This is Strictly Come Dancing, by the way, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, listeners might not be aware of the bit where your partner invaded oh, the Crimea, yeah. but there you go. You, you danced on TV is your point. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Didn't you get quite far in the show, in fact? You, you spoke about it very modestly there. But... Well, the quarter far. I mean, you know, I, I came fourth runner-up or whatever it was. It's further than I managed in my reality TV show. Yes, so... some people dream of a quarter-final appearance. So... What was your reality TV show? I did Bake Off and I got to the week before the quarter-final, so you've definitely beaten me there. Oh, oh God, I did the, uh, the stand-up stand cancer, cancer one. Right. Oh, yeah. Poor love, because I don't have any transferable skills of any meaningful <laughs> sort. I mean, I speak two languages, but... I mean, that's no good. Doesn't help you bake, I suppose, no. I've been thinking about this. Obviously, with the with lockdown, I've really been forced to sort of imagine or quietly think about what contribution I'd make to humanity in the event of a serious crisis or war. And I realised I'd have to be a hostage. <laughs> <laughs> this was sort of writ large or articulated best when I did bake off. And, you know, I just sort of, I gave up. So I got drunk, which they didn't show, of course, on television. The you know, they Shame they didn't show that. Right, was before the water. Before the baking bit, they, they film what you're baking in the... Yeah. What's that thing called? Oh, yes, the oven. And, um, <laughs> I can see where your problems might have begun here, Rob. Right. Well, I use mine for storage. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, the cameraman was laughing so much that he hurt his back. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I, I, I think we changed the subject from me for a second, so I'll, I'll continue. Uh, we, um, we did... Um, we did... Sorry, we did... Uh, so from after, after Strictly, and uh, I started making crime documentaries and I write a couple of columns in The Sun and in The Evening Standard. And nowadays I write, but also make documentaries about history, but really through the kind of prison of human experience. I made one about the Holocaust yep. yeah, and I'm hoping to make several more moving forward. I mean, it's quite a CV, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's one of the longer lists we've had. <laughs> I mean, we haven't even touched yeah. on the charity work as well. You do quite a lot for charity and mental health services and... Yeah. Yeah. homelessness and things like that. Most of the episode could just be listing stuff that Robert's done, actually, if we're not careful. I yeah. never done it. I do think, I mean, you do feel, I mean, I suspect you sound rather young to remember Smashy and Nicey, but I think the moment that you announce what you do for charity, <laughs> you know, there's a moment you need to shrug your shoulders and roll your eyes. I, 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 the narcissism ends at charity. Right, because it's not charity if you talk about it. Also, <laughs> you only get to do it because you get this obscene amount of privilege by virtue yeah. of having a public platform. And anyone who doesn't contribute a significant amount of their time to charity, if you're in the public eye, or worse still, takes money for charity appearances or complains about being asked to give selfies, mm. can get themselves a real bloody job. Completely agree. Yeah, I've seen that sort of behaviour. But I should just add, Robert, that... Your thing about um, you seem too young for Smashy and Nicey is unintentionally divisive remark because I'm quite a lot older than Michael and I unfortunately do remember. I have no idea, never heard but of But Michael, it. being in his 20s, never gets any cultural references and it makes me feel like a dinosaur. So I'll just quickly fill you in. Smash and Nicey, Michael, were characters created by Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse, who it depresses me to think you might not know. I know Harry Enfield. Okay, fine. <laughs> and uh, basically, they were sort of DJs, but there was a catchphrase. Like, he does a lot of good work for charity, but he doesn't like to talk about it. So it's exactly right. what Robert has referenced, this kind of false modesty around charity. With you. And by the way, I'll fill you in on Bovril another we'll time, because you, you might have forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Robert, you were mentioning that about the privilege... Wait a second. You... Don't claim Bovril, <laughs> Michael. 
he's too young. I mean, it's not like it's not that he was sort of born during rationing. <laughs> Honestly, oh, you don't remember Bovril? The things he doesn't know about. And what a coupon to go and buy an outfit for the winter. <laughs> Honestly, I'm about the same age as you, Robert, and I'm constantly having to fill this guy on, on what he believes of the old days, but it's something like 1996. It's like, it's like a drinkable marmite, from what I understand. <laughs> Let's move on from your uh, crass youthfulness, Michael. And go, go back to mining this much older, wiser man. <laughs> well, yeah, you're saying you've kind of, in more recent years, you've kind of been afforded this privilege, which you seem to be very mm. aware of. But when you were younger, the first question that we often ask people is, what was their first brush with masculinity? And I'm assuming you didn't have this privilege then. Mm. Could you talk a bit about when you first remember encountering masculinity and what it kind of meant or what it looked like at the time? Yeah. This is such an interesting question. And I should be clear with anybody listening to this, you know, I obviously knew the general theme of your excellent podcast that deliberately didn't want to know what the questions were, because, you know, I think it's interesting or certainly more interesting to get an immediate and authentic response. And, you know, that's a difficult one. I mean, it's about the men who were in your life immediately, Mm -hmm. I suppose. And I suppose the the first person that you're aware of, I mean, without being too painfully excruciatingly obvious, is your dad and my brother. What's fascinating for me now is that I have retrospectively recurated my childhood, not just to place myself as the hero of the narrative, but I'm constantly thinking backwards, applying my now sort of slightly more emotionally and perhaps intellectually evolved position. So it's a difficult thing to answer honestly from the point of view of being a child, but I certainly Mm. remember masculinity being wholly sewn up, bound up in, well, the threads of it bound up in the tapestry of religion. And I don't mean Judaism, which was important to my family. I mean, Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. (laughs) (laughs) It was absolutely the way in which my brother then and my father and all of his friends communicated with and alongside one another. 1980-81, you know, Ricky Vila and Ozzy Ardili signing up for spot for Tottenham and, and being almost, I felt, kidnapped to go to the Paxton Road <laughs> to sign a virtue signal to be delighted by these people, thinking, what is this? And then being taken to this, this sort of place of smell and unreconstructed undecorated horror called football where we were sitting far too high from the action i don't like where this is going (laughs) and then i fell asleep um i was about three or four until half time the first game that i saw and woke up and asked whether it started yet (laughs) and then sort of throughout life this is the kind of prism and medium through which my brother and dad and my wider male members of my family have communicated with one another and actually I've come to understand and to appreciate it more. But the masculinity, I suppose, it's, it's, it's really my, my dad and my brother and football. And slightly later, my grandfather as well, who I'm sure we'll get to, who, who was a Holocaust survivor, who was indifferent to football. But really that immediate presence of my dad and mm. my brother and feeling wholly kind of oppositional to it intuitively yeah right from the outset yeah immediately i can relate to this and mark and i have spoken about it quite a lot before Mm. i mean i i'm a gay man and i i think it's quite a common experience for queer people to not feel like they could they match this football obviously not for everybody but mark is very much of the what do you even call yourselves well i am i am straight for a start and i'm sort of lifelong lover of football yeah and this Mm. podcast this is about the third or fourth time on this podcast that i've been forced to re-examine football as a kind of um 
series of masculine codes which lock some people out. I love it too now. Robert, you mentioned it being kind of like this, um, you describe it as a religion somewhat facetiously, but it is this sort of way that people... Not facetiously at all. Oh, no, no. It has all of the critical ingredients of a fact. There's a yeah. tribal identity, a sense of community. It, naturally, as I say, you have to be very careful because these were not my feelings as a three-year-old. But, yeah. You know, I feel such a profound affection and it's sewn into the kind of tapestry of, of Mina. I want Totten to do well. I don't follow it. But when they do well, I know that uh, it matters. Mm. But at the same time, it would absolutely curate the emotional content of the week in our house or the day. Mm. And that's a more complex and a darker part of the story. But certainly if Tottenham had won that week, it mattered. And it, it, in many respects, it actually made our house safer. Right. So that's hugely important and I think sort of significant but I, I have now grown up affection for it at the time it was just totally alienating of course yeah and the interest in it and stuff and the team sport I just you know didn't care for it really we've asked this question of a couple of people before but why and I've got my own ideas because I'm part of part of the problem I suppose of the phrase but why do you think that football serves as a sort of surrogate set of emotions for so many men, if that's the phrase. Well, use the word problem. I, I'm quite strict about this. I, I don't necessarily think it is a problem. No, maybe maybe that's not the right phrase. Right. I think we need certainly to be, so I love this, just immediately listening to the two of you, this open dialogue and being part of an inclusive conversation about helping men or just, just being part of helping men become more emotionally open and articulate. Of course, that matters. That's what we're all about. Yeah. Right. But actually... Including me. <laughs> right. But football does do that, right? Yes. I agree. You can talk about everything in that 90 minutes. You know, love, the chasm between your expectation of life or, or the week and disappointment, platonic love that you might have for another man, even a kind of benign form of sexual admiration because some of them are sexy and because... There's this other thing about football that, that I've noticed. I mean, over the years, and we're, we're jumping around the timeline, but, you know, I've come to know well-known footballers and stuff. It's a fascinating thing. You know, I've been out over the years, I mean, out as in socially with, you know, a good friend of mine, Greg Rutherford, who's an athlete. Oh, yeah. What's really interesting is that young men especially will come up to him and they're delighted to meet him. It's a different sort of masculinity. Mm. It's a sort of sense of physical admiration. They look at him at arm's length in delight, thinking, God, you've really achieved something. And there's a part of them that thinks even at their very best, they couldn't have done that. It's a really interesting thing, not quite on topic, but when you hang out with footballers, even for a second, there's a different energy, it's a slightly different aggressive response when young men especially go up to footballers. It's a sense in which every young man that I know believed at some point, but for the right scout being at the right place at the right time, they could have played for Tottenham. Yes, yes, It's yes. about being heroic and glamour and being admired by women. It includes in its grammar football, I think, just about kind of every facet of masculine life. And so I don't think it's a problem at all. And I think actually it's getting better now because of how inclusive it's becoming. And I think it's important to note how important it is to people. And like, as a young person, I didn't relate to it, but I could still see its importance in culture. And like you're saying, it is becoming more inclusive. Right. And I agree with you, Robert. I, I'd said problem quite kind of in a quite a flip way, but obviously I spend a lot of my life advocating for football and during things like World Cups or other hubs of major widespread football yeah. interests, I spend quite a lot of time talking to people like Michael about, I suppose, the, as you say, the human interest. I often think with things like 
Game of Thrones, if I was to watch an isolated episode from mm. sort of five series in, it would mean absolutely nothing to me because I do not know any of the any of the story that's gone before. And it is sort of a bit like that with football. It's difficult for people to grasp a game in isolation. You might as well be that four-year-old Robert going to a Tottenham match and falling asleep. No, but it wasn't isolation. I, I'm, I'm not quite that. Well, it was to some extent because you were so young. You, you, you didn't have the history or the texture of it. Yeah, that's true. But I was picking up the narrative. Mm. There's two elements to it, perhaps. First of all, I'm not willfully um, forced or conscripted into doing or saying anything. Mm. And I certainly had that sense of, the world, you know, you externally don't get to determine my narrative, right? You know, that's a finger yeah. up to you. Even today, that's a big part yeah, of, yeah. of who I am. So that probably informed it a bit. And secondly, I was just bored by it. Yeah. yeah. It's as simple as that. But the gift even now that it's given my brother and dad and my late grandfather and all of the men to be able to communicate really challenging things, sometimes in the absence of having other language, is really significant. Mm. And also we have to be very careful about having a conversation where we forget and exclude lots of young gay and members of um, our queer communities who are totally into it. Very much so. Matt Lucas, friend of mine, he's a mad Arsenal fan and always has been. It's true. There's also a certain classism about the way people look down on football, which is a separate conversation. Sure. Um, Mm. What I would ask is, if we go back to the the young Robert, Mm. you weren't looking at footballers and, and you know no. sports people thinking so are there men you do remember looking at with the sort of delight you talk about at least as aspirational figures who were your equivalents if there were equivalents <laughs> well in a football context I should tell you you know I was talking about this the other day very late on in my career I'll come back to uh, was offered a job in the Turks and Caicos Islands where I was um, invited the trial is still going to well, prosecute the ex-government who was suspended for corruption uh, it was a very serious international trial. One of those gigs that come up from time to time, Michael. <laughs> right, you know, as they do. And uh, I can't <laughs> tell you the number of surprise, the, the amount of surprise that I get. It's always upsetting when people look at me, what, you were serious. I, <laughs> one occasion I went into The Hague to apply for an extradition warrant and I was sent by the person, uh, she can't have been a receptionist, whoever she was, in one direction. And I thought, well, this is strange. Anyway, long and short of it, it turned out that she thought that I was doing the hair and makeup for the interpreters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there you are. Talk about loud subconscious bias. Anyhow, <laughs> I only knew about the Turks and Caicos Islands because I used to keep meticulous notes on Miss World. Right, right. The pageant. The pageant. Yeah, I know it's not very politic, but, you know. The international was, competition, yes. Right, 70s and 80s. And it was at a time when a, we didn't necessarily come to understand the violence that that sort of objectification did. And yeah. for me, it wasn't about that anyway. It was all about how intelligent they were. And I was getting extra marks if they were going to be doctors and that sort of thing. So that's what I was doing. But in terms of football, I used to keep meticulous notes on that. But at the same time, I did collect the football, the Panini football stickers, you know, where you go and stickers. Yeah. Right. But there was my brother who is, I mean, he has the most extraordinary gift of memory, almost photographic, better than mine. And he would, you know, remember every statistic in the world and complete the books and then have swaps and stuff. I used to keep the teams in order of attractiveness. Huh. <laughs> and so even at six, I think it must have been... I didn't know you were allowed to do that when I was collecting them. <laughs> well, I did. I mean, you know, I really cared about that sort of thing. But I, I had an entire book of Jan Mulby's. Really? Poor Jan. I, I mentioned this to someone the other day. You know, this is one of the real... Um, when you say an entire book, you collected his sticker over and over yeah. again? Well, I mean, so I say, I mean, I mean, a whole team of like whoever the most attractive player was on the team, I'd collect them, you know. That's a very unusual approach to football stickers, I think, yeah. Yes, it was sort of an early art installation. It was a sort of... <laughs> Artist as well as all those other things I on the I used to have CV. a football poster on my wall at home when I was younger. It's all coming out now. Which one? Newcastle United, because that was our team. 
it's interesting that, that Robert says about you know you have a team even if you aren't technically that engaged with it and I had a team that was Newcastle and that was on my wall and I put blue tack over the eyes because I felt like they were watching me I like to watch them but not to be watched that is a chilling look into your psyche <laughs> I know <laughs> nobody does that <laughs> no but there's also a sense in which you have to of course because of the shame and because the fear of being found out mm. those sorts of social virtue signals are very important of course that you were you know you were able to kind of speak the language so to speak my knowledge of uh, 1980s Tottenham is and I can do all the songs and all the teams and so it often surprises people but yes Jan Mulby that's one of the real unhappy downsides of having unfettered access to the internet these days is of course you can google search them and the years have not been kind to poor Jan it's probably never a good idea to google search somebody retrospectively that you had a crush on in the 80s that you yeah. <laughs> yes that's probably true what about away from football were there were there men that you looked at not necessarily attractiveness wise, but just as good examples of masculinity that were different from what you saw in your immediate family? You know, it's so interesting. If you ask me a question, what women in your life were significant and formative, Hmm. that would not be a challenging question. Right. Yeah. You know, there's a, a limitless number of them, but there are four or five that I can immediately go to. You know, from my mum to... Who are they? Well, you know, from my mum who became a, a single mother who went from a very working class environment. This is the thing. People listen to me and um, they make a series of false, understandable assumptions, seeing as my gob sounds like it's been mugged by a Mitford. I I, I understand (laughs) that they are often surprised that I grew up in the same road as Amy Winehouse. That's how all of my family sound. And again, this is a self-creation, a special creation, perhaps, in opposition to the environment I found myself in. Mm, Um, It wasn't a judgment on it. It was just what happened. And then, you know, she went from, you know, being uneducated, as she would self-describe, to within a period of years, getting educated, starting a business, becoming very successful, at the same time as having the emotional range and understanding that she never sought to project whatever perfectly justified toxic feelings she may have had towards my dad onto me and my brother which meant that we kept relationships with him and all of his family and still do wonderful, beautiful, deep ones. And so I had, you know, two feet in, I suppose, gradually into two different worlds. One that was kind of, you might describe as working class, although again, that's a problematic description, and and one which eventually became very privileged because of her. Hmm. And then the teachers that have influenced me, you know, Mrs Cornish and Mrs Grice, very, very influential. And the artists and authors that I loved were all women too so again it's a really interesting you ask me that question it's an easy one yeah I genuinely as I'm sitting here I'm really kind of thinking in a, in a way which is interesting like how fascinating it is that I find it difficult to think as a young person who the masculine figures were what qualities were you drawn to in those women what qualities about them did you find uh, yourself admiring such a good question thank you I thought of it myself well done Michael the answer is always kind of strength resilience and cultural and intellectual and emotional curiosity and range Mm. so really like I suppose it's a long sentence people who are open and clever and I suppose how fascinating and I suppose perhaps counterintuitive when you think of me and the character through which I'm chiefly known but that absence of judgment (laughs) yeah judgment is one thing that you do sort of do you have to right but also from a young age I think as well I, I think I didn't suit the condition of childhood terribly well 
Right. I've seen you say that before. Yeah, you, you, you said that you just, the whole thing was absurd to you, even as a child. Yeah, I mean, obviously, again, this is really remembered, but I mm. certainly remember my parents getting, you know, the announcement they were going to get divorced. I could only be four or five or six, something. that sort of age, you know, five perhaps. And I saw somebody respond to this, suggesting that I was being inauthentic. Or, but I know I wasn't. I absolutely remember thinking, well, of course you must get divorced. You're absolutely unsuited for one another. <laughs> yeah. You know, at that point, being in a working class community and quite a religious community too, you know, we would have been the first family to get divorced, which would have placed me at the epicenter of a social drama. Mm. You know, and as I've said, with a speaking part, I mean, I'd have loved all of that sort of attention, I suppose. <laughs> and there were no books or anything of that kind. I was constantly imagining, I was desperate to go to boarding school and, you know, imagining this sort of life beyond my, you know, I, I subsequently realised, of course, why that was taking place. But there have been very significant men in my life who are of profound influence. Well, you mentioned your grandfather earlier. I mean, right. was he an influence in your life or is he now? How do you relate to him? Yeah, he's become now. And by the time I was in my early 20s, if you like, the intellectual, emotional and moral centrepiece. Again, it's interesting because the three significant men in my life who I, I looked up to, two of whom are gay, incidentally, I suppose. And my grandfather, I understood that they were of significant influence in my early 20s. I, I became a barrister, not because I had any driving ambition to do it, which is now impossible for young people mm, yeah. or, or older people thinking of coming to the bar, you know, they're in £70,000 worth of You debt. don't fall into it these days. No. Precisely. <laughs> you have to have, because of the nature, it was a whole nother podcast, but because of the debt and the competitiveness and all the rest of it and all of the horror and the burdens that we placed on um, young people, especially from socioeconomically challenged backgrounds and the, I think, potentially incurable barriers that we've placed upon social mobility, which is again yeah. another conversation. But, you know, I came from a working class background, went to state schools, left university with 1100 quid's worth of debt, right? Really matters yeah. that. Unthinkable now as a trajectory. Precisely. And, you know, all of the greats, still the greats at the bar, um, when I started, people that can stand on their hindlings and give the speeches that can give you goosebumps, most of them too didn't go to university at all. You didn't have to. Yeah. Again, and yet we place this disproportionate currency on hoop jumping. Sorry, that's a long tangent, but I We write... quite like tangents. We like to hear stuff that we don't know about. Well, I, yeah, I feel very strongly about that sort of thing. Any kind of snobbery. I've got no time for a discussion of masculinity does encompass things like this as well, because, of course, that then tends to favour a certain type of very confident, very loud, well-spoken person that we're not exclusively men. But uh, you think class does? Sorry, do you mean class does? Oh, I think that in a in a world where it's more difficult, where the opportunity field is skewed towards people with either more money or privilege, there's a certain type of character who thrives in that environment. Right. And it often does feel like it's a particular type of man. I tell you what it is. I mentor, it's actually chiefly young women. I've got quite a few goddaughters from a variety of different backgrounds. I don't do, I'm not interested in, you know, when my girlfriends have babies and stuff and you're supposed to pretend how delighted you are. And I just, I mean, just, no, thank you. You don't get involved till a bit later. No, 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 no. I mean, like 20 years yeah, later. have got a producer there, Victoria, who knows perfectly well. They get a bottle of Cristal <laughs> when they have the baby. They get a key to my house and they say, look. See you in a couple of decades. <laughs> Not quite as long. No, when they become interesting, I love, you know, I've been teaching nine-year-olds Tudor history in lockdown. I'm like, that's the best age. They're fascinating and open about the world and unfettered by other people's ideas. 
the best. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, they're absolutely uh, brilliant. This could be useful for my homeschooling needs. I'll keep your number. <laughs> As I've looked at some of the brilliant young people that I've been so privileged, a word that's so overused, but I think you have to deploy it when you mean it. So privileged to mentor that the difference. I mean, we we could go on about class dynamics for a really long time. I think the neatest way of articulating it is that depending on your school, depending on your parents, whether they had books in the house, the extent to, well, let me put it this way. There are certain people who feel confident enough to feel like they deserve to be in the room. Yes, I think that's what I was sort of getting at. Really. Whatever room that is. Yeah. And nothing informs that sense of confidence than class. Yeah. And yeah. we need to really work out ways of challenging that. Yeah. And I suppose that that's different between my brother and me too. We're wholly different people in that regard. Just coming back to a question, because it's an important one about the, the men that informed that, that I was through. Mm, yeah. My grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. And I'm sure some of your listeners would have watched the documentary that we made with BBC. And it was really yeah, wonderful. Really sure. brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. But you see, he was, his masculinity was an incidental feature of the other part of his critical identity, his being a survivor. Mm. And the range of eccentricities that he taught me what I mean by eccentricities that he taught me, I'm not talking about people that walk around the world wearing yellow bow ties, consciously cultivating eccentricities. They can be interesting. Oh, yeah. Forced eccentricity. And there's nothing more toe-curling than that, is there? <laughs> Agree. We can all think of those people. Right. Those are usually the type of men that straight women set me up with. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, you've got pink trousers on again. <laughs> yeah. Precisely. Yeah. It's that once you've survived that, you've been through that, you, you, you've touched the face of tyranny. You've known what hunger was in the truest sense of the word that you could never use it in a glib fashion and mm. cold. When you have lost truly everything. And yet, two things, you see the world through chiefly an optimistic prism mm. in a space of absolute non-judgment. I mean, it's a word that we use, overuse. I don't judge you. I don't care what background you're from. I don't care what colour you are and whether you're green and pink or blue. There are no green, pink or blue people. Mm. And we do have to wrestle with the societal realities. In my grandfather's case, it was true. You know, his best friend, Murphy, his only friend, really, who was a six foot two large Jamaican man, a man of colour, they were best friends. Ichel and Michel, they used to call them. Mm. And he would be wholly disinterested in other people other than what they did, never who they were. You, you realise, it took a long time to realise that that was the lesson that he taught me. And secondly... The actions were more important than identity. It was everything. You know, yeah. your character isn't who you are. It's what you do. It's what that, you do. It's what informs yeah. your character, right? Uh, important lesson, I think, that. But you have to be careful, though, <laughs> because it, it does become your character the more you do it, right? Yeah. If, you do, if, yeah. you're, if you're in bad patterns. The other thing about it is that there's a lovely Yiddish word called dovka, which I've been reflecting on recently. It's, it's hard to describe, like so many Yiddish words, it's a whole universe, a whole novel of ideas. But what it effectively means is that the outside world doesn't get the right to determine your narrative and who you are. And the only times I've ever felt uncomfortable in professional life or, or in life in general, it's where I'm met by a community, a group, a professional, a creative space, 
when people come preloaded with ideas about what I'm supposed to do or say, I mean, mm. I mean, the only time I've ever said anything inauthentic or untrue on television was when I did Strictly and I was so overwhelmed by it or I was asked to look down the barrel end of the glittery cameras, <laughs> overwrought by it. And I was repeating what they asked me to say. I of course. I found myself looking into the camera and saying, my whole life, all I've ever wanted to do is to get to Blackpool. <laughs> <laughs> Which no one has ever said with a straight face. And yet in that environment, you do. <laughs> well, I love, and I must emphasize, you must leave this in. I love Blackpool. But I mean, even some of the heroin users that I used to represent from there used to pretend they lived in St. Anne's. You know? <laughs> um, so, but the other thing about it, I, I did a run across the desert last year for, for sport relief. And, you know, fitness is a very important part of my, my life. And I could tell a bit because originally we were going to go to Mongolia and do this ice thing, that they put me in the ice bath and the creative community, let's call them that, the producers and the lot, were sort of waiting for John Inman on steroids to show up. Yeah. Waiting for me to yelp like a highly strung poodle. And so the response to that, whenever I'm met by those sorts of limited social expectations, which you can feel even if they're not expressed, mm. is to put my middle fingers up and say, well, you piss off, you know. You get into the ice bath and you say, I'd like a glass of wine and a cigarette at once. Oh, ideal. Right. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, um, Dufka was the word. Can you spell the word for us? Because it sounds like a concept which is quite applicable to enormous number of guests mm. that we have on the podcast. This idea mm. that nobody gets to determine your inner monologue Internal or inner identity. Yeah. The different spellings. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, Yiddish is interesting because it's sort of based on German and Russian, and, and it's a blended Creole language, but it's written mm. in Hebrew. But it would be Dovka. I mean, you'd have to. We'll find D-A-V-K-A, it. D a v k a. I suppose it feels like, as you say, as as a lot of Yiddish words are, it's the sort of word that we. Um, could do with you know in it's our interesting armory because really. you're saying that it, it was this kind of quality in your grandfather that you saw but it also sounds like you had this quality this kind of internal authenticity even when you were younger about 
who you were and what you're like? I don't know. No, it's in constant conflict. Right. You know, difficulty is there is this overwhelming doveness, this sort of fist up to the world. That sense in which you can feel people have a certain view of you and、right. you want to respond. I should say that you know the two other heroes, my Malcolm Bishop and Peter Tatchell. Oh, we were going to ask about、Peter、these other Tatchell, two. Yeah, yes. very interesting. Yeah, well, we'll come on to the difficulty with Dovka is that it gives the idea as if again I, I listen to myself and it's an echo as you're asking these questions. I'm banging on. I don't think it's fair to say banging on when we ask you a question and you answer it. Yeah, podcasts are ninety percent banging well, I suppose, on. To be perfectly fair, I don't fair. know. It's a, it's a lot, isn't it? We're loving it. I'm very conscious that when we rethink about and reframe our childhood, we often place ourselves as the hero of the narrative. Yes,、mm. I certainly do that. Cleansed of all of the you know, negative features of our of our personalities, yeah. And it's not true to say there I was, you know, a young person thinking, you don't get to determine my narrative. I shall live my life authentically. Absolute nonsense. Even now, it's a constant wrestle, a battle between that and capitulating to the other. It's not a demon. It's one of the features of who we are, of needing to fit in and above all else to be liked. Yeah.、Mm. And those are. Really difficult things. That's a very difficult circle to square. In my grandfather's case,、mm. he gave that sort of thing. He's absolutely undivided indifference. <laughs> And the heroes that I found in my life, the the two other male heroes, Malcolm Bishop, who was a, a QC when I first started, didn't sort of take me under his wing. He's one of the. I wouldn't say he's rude, <laughs> but. Yeah, I mean, he kind of makes I don't know Simon Cowell seem like Boutros Boutros Garley. <laughs> Wikipedia, everybody, you know, he was the at the UN. Oh, don't worry, I know. Who, yeah, I'll fill my clip. Thank you. <laughs>、uh, he was this barrister who, honestly, he took me under his wing. Brilliant, uncompromising, and genuinely thinks and thought that it mattered a great deal more what he thought about other people than what they. Think about about, about him. him. Also, he's gay. Michael and I are quite envious of people like that because we we both feel as if we have a deficit of self possession like that. I don't know where it comes from or whether it's something you evolve or whether it's intrinsic to people. But every time we hear about people like that, we're jealous. Well, it requires courage, right? Perhaps、yeah. it's about courage. Yeah, it's courage. I mean, in his case, it's also one of the. I mean, there are other. I'm sure much more kind of complex dynamics at play. From his childhood and stuff, but you know, that's the way he presented. Certainly, I mean,、mm-hmm. you know, I've got countless Malcolm Bishop stories, and very we think about the authentic life he lived. That word that keeps echoing through our discussion: authenticity. He, authenticity.、Um, yeah. You know, he and Anthony, his partner, were together for fifty-two years. Of course, before it was even legal. Yeah. yeah. And he became a High Court judge and a, and, and a QC. Sadly, Anthony was killed, murdered, in fact, a couple of years ago. Oh God. And. It was is one of the great sort of tragedies, you know, that I've been close to、mm. personally. And Peter Tatchell, you see, the reason that I admire him, and I've got to meet him, but it was always an arm's length. Not to say that our politics remain always a dead end, but you see, he has the courage to live a life of. Absolute, uncompromising, unyielding devotion to his truth. Yeah, and there's nothing more manly than that. Yeah, I've scarcely seen a more single-minded person than、right. Peter Tatchell. I think it's fair to say single-minded. Right, I regret the word manly actually, and I, I, there's nothing more living your life that's going to gift you at the end of your days 
uh, completion, satisfaction, a sense of emotional peace. The knowing that you've pursued exactly what you believed in and been exactly the person you wanted to be. Right. You know, I love Russian literature and not long ago reread it's difficult work, but a, I think a, an essential one. In fact, I recently was asked by one of the papers I write in The Sun to suggest a book for readers. And I said, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. <laughs> and they said, well, could you think of another? Plenty so, of uptake for that, I should think. <laughs> there is. I don't. The tyranny of low expectations, madams. I'm not uh, not judging the sun readers. It's just I also love Russian literature and I've had limited success passing that love on to most of my uh, nearest and dearest. Well, I know, but we've got to start with Pushkin, you see. Because War and Peace is difficult. There's too many characters in it. Very, very long. (laughs) Yeah, but it's so wonderful. Anyway, you know, it's that sense that every time we do something that we intuitively know is in opposition to or has somehow interfered with our instinctive sense of truth we're prepared to uh, supplicate ourselves to somebody for a financial benefit i.e suck up to a boss in some way who we know is morally and sometimes physically odious Mm. where we're prepared to say something on social media that we don't necessarily believe but we know that it's going to enhance our likes and consequently give us that little endorphin high that serotonin thwack every time somebody likes what we've had to say even though we only part believe it at that time at that moment, I think that you do that, you, you've you done real kind of violence, I think, to yourself. To your own self, yeah. Which over a period of time can absolutely affect your psychological and consequent emotional well-being. And when I think of Peter Tatchell, he's put his physical body sometimes in spaces of danger. Mm. Yeah. He stood up and pointed at the emperor wearing no clothes and saying, not only are you naked, but your ass is fat. <laughs> and he's done it. Which no one way. does in the original story, if I remember. Well, no. No one goes that far. And he's done it in a way where he's never been affected by the currents of the day. It's always been him making his own personal assessment of right and wrong. For sure and understood where history is and placed himself on the right side of it. And it's that, it's that sense of looking at him towards him, for me, from where I sit, up at him, thinking, yeah, that's what the heroic is. You know, Maya Angelou, whose work I only sort of read recently, really, she gave her last interview to Anderson Cooper, it's a brilliant interview, and she said, you know, you can't practice any of the virtues consistently without courage. And the men that I admire then and now are ones across, by the way, the political spectrum, social spectrum, it's immaterial of class, whatever, that somehow have the courage to be their authentic selves, to point at some moral challenge, political issue of the day, and to be able to speak the truth. This leads quite nicely into a question we always ask to conclude the podcast. If you were to be building a man from scratch what three qualities would you invest in them to make them the best versions of themselves for this world i mean we've talked a lot about courage and authenticity but what three qualities do you think would be the most important ones well that's a difficult you mean build yourself a man like build a bear workshops but with men instead you weren't going to go for that parallel i wasn't going to but i changed your mind visibly yeah (laughs) so difficult I mean, there's a man, of course, I want well let's do both a man you want and a man that should exist you can approach it either or both ways yeah (laughs) ah 
Will, I mean, we may as well use this opportunity for an advert. <laughs> and yeah. I have in the past. Have you? Oh, he certainly has. This podcast does a lot of different things. A it lot hasn't of different worked functions. yet, but it's, it's still mm. early days. The podcast is still in its infancy, Michael. Patience. Well, you see, this is the problem. I'm so dreadful. I've, as you can tell, I've got very limited small talk. <laughs> you know, it's that thing where even years ago, when you were supposed to go on those apps and there's three exchanges, and then whomever you're speaking to, you're supposed to be wearing as a hat, you know, three... <laughs> Three minutes later. <laughs> That's my understanding of how these things work, yeah. Right. I could never do any of these things. So, so I mean, on one occasion, I did some poor man's tax return. On the <laughs> other, I filled in his employment appeal tribunal form. It sounds like you might have been on the wrong sites in a way. No, no. Very altruistic, though. It's great. It's, it's excellent use of the time if you if it's not going to work out in a romantic way. Well, I've just got no closure. I was just sort of too embarrassed. You know, I don't, you know, anyway. So embarrassed that you had to do their tax return just to give yourself an out. <laughs> That's no, great. it just would never evolve into that sort of discussion. I don't, you know. I'm, no, it's not easy. Right. I've got no room for, you know, ha- ha- the initial flush of how are you or somebody wanting to talk to me about the new Ariana Grande album. I've got nothing. I sympathise. I've got nowhere to go. I want to know about your childhood pain. <laughs> I'm, I'm similar. The older I get, the more I think I've only got room for big talk, really, because there's only so much time. Right. To start. Precisely. You I don't know. Waste it. How are you? Good, good. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Not interested. <laughs> so on that note well there's the man of one's dreams and then there's the man i would build shall we take the man of uh, one's dreams first oh yes Just as an advert why not okay good well so to any listeners out there that may happen to work on scaffolding <laughs> now we're getting somewhere <laughs> yes right i'd like you to work on, i mean be able to build your own scaffolding building in general i don't care about it i've never ever ever interested in some nothing in somebody's education nothing bores me more than somebody sort of telling me or reeling off in some species of social display what uh, degrees they've got I mean who cares without question the most emotionally limited people I've met were some of the people I know from Oxbridge I mean my god oh, dear. always the way <laughs> that's Mark to a T <laughs> I can't bear any of that. You know, this. so what? So you can think deeply about some ponderous own by Herodotus. I'm being taken down, yeah, Michael. Mark, I am watching Mark this get is, negged in front of my face. This is what they call shade, beautiful. I I mean, it's just such a... Who cares? It's about how culturally curious you are, how yep. intellectually open. Right? So we've got, I've got a culturally curious scaffolder currently. You've got, what, you've got one more. Um, okay, culturally curious, brackets open-minded. Brackets open-minded. Scaffolder. Scaffolding specialist. Yes, preferably from Newcastle or Northern Ireland, because that just adds a whole nother point. The Geordie accent is a real boxer dropper, I think. Well, I mean, oh my gosh. Boxer mm. dropper, eh? Yeah. It's just, yeah. I think here, Robert, these are so specific that we should be able to narrow this down to the one or two listeners that are in all of these camps fairly <laughs> right. quickly. So we'll get back to you next Wednesday or so. It's got to be the way. I mean, you think about it, there must be some sort of somebody else. Oh, we'll there. find it. I think the Geordie accent can take a solid four and turn him into a solid six and a half. Completely there agree. George Jackson is a sex multiplier. You hear that here first. Yes. <laughs> so moving from Man of Dreams then oh, yes. to the best equipped man. Yeah. I think it's three things. Humility, resilience, and Dufka. Yeah, mm. to come back to that idea. That's a great package of well, we've got two very different useful conceptions of the person. Yeah, there. I think people confuse the word humility with weakness. Mm, absolutely. You know, it's that a real that masculinity where you have the still understanding and wisdom and centeredness 
to accept with delight, enthusiasm and curiosity just how much of the universe you don't know. Mm. and to be excited by that that's a man i really agree i I love that in a person because after all the the most we can ever understand about existence is still an absolutely pathetic fraction of what is out there of what the totality of experience is yeah in a way that's quite liberating if if again you have the humility to touch on that idea humility also includes all of these other skills we break you know listening Mm. yeah and hearing and you know being interested in the world around you and i mean so so yeah but failing all that we'll get you a scaffolder do you think you might actually? Well, I mean, we do have quite. Do a, I mean, we have a reasonably large queer listener. Well, I, I, I actually live in Newcastle, as and well, he's, he's so from I can, Newcastle. I can keep yeah. an eye out. <laughs> Wait, hang on. So we're right at the end. You've just told me. <laughs> oh yeah, we've, we've, got, we've got boots on the ground for you, Robert. <laughs> I mean, after lockdown, I could walk around Tyneside with a sandwich board, <laughs> or just walk around with Michael and see or what happens. Or just go like approach local scaffolding companies. I would assume we'll make a plan for you, Robert. No, you see, the difficulty that will result in some sort of court case, won't it? <laughs> much yeah but if anyone can handle a court case it's you surely maybe but you can't i mean i suppose i'd have to film all of the transactions (laughs) what i'll do is i'll have a look around i'll keep an eye out right and we'll we'll let you know if any of the listeners get in touch and if you are listening and you are a culturally curious scaffolder with a geordie or northern irish accent please do get get in touch this would be a real coup for our podcast if if we become a sort of dating service to to famous people (laughs) this could be perfect absolutely perfect well you know where to find us and we will put you in touch yeah thank you so much for joining us thank you for being so honest and erudite and everything thank you it's been a delight thank you very much robert rinder thank you so lovely to meet you both everybody have um be safe be well be joyous thank you robert thank you bye love that was robert rinder or judge rinder as he is known in my head and i can't change that um really great guy really wonderful conversation and in an abrupt turn from a barrister we are now going straight over to the sas for next week's podcast with ollie ollerton I'm a former UK Special Forces soldier, but I don't hang my coat on that accreditation or this word of celebrity, which I'm still not used to. I'm an entrepreneur. I've got a few businesses. I am very much focused on self-development, inspiring other people. So that is the main focus of of my business interests. Yeah, you've got a company which is all about that, basically, about enabling people to break free of the sort of psychological shackles that keep us from our goals. Is that fair? I like that. I might, that'll be on the wall next week. <laughs> there you go. I've accidentally got myself a job as copywriter for Ollie there. <laughs> so there you go. Ollie is basically ex-military, reluctant celebrity, and now professionally inspires people to achieve stuff. And me and Michael are just sitting here having just had a muffin. <laughs> <laughs> a lovely muffin, though. <laughs> it was, uh, apparently it was really nice. I didn't even get it. <laughs> so Ollie, ex-military, has had quite a sort of roller coaster of a life emotionally and well in all ways including an ape attack yes including an ape attack if that's not a tease for next week i don't know what is Uh, and he is now kind of motivational speaker and uh, And an author inspirational figure and an author yes it's one to look forward to and we will see you then now so i don't always say bye i've been told about this so i'm going to bye bye even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.